0: Today, as we look to God's Word, I am not oblivious of the season or how close we are to Christmas Day. And I trust you will understand that as you see the, the two unusual passages I put before you being developed this morning. I'm going to read two verses from Genesis 3, which we've been studying in recent weeks, just two verses, 14 and 15 of Genesis 3. And then from the last book of the Bible, I'll read the first portion. Of Revelation chapter 12. Listen to God's holy word. It gives us the big picture of what God is doing in history. We read after the fall of the man and woman, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust All the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And then this scene, which is in symbolic picture language. In the last chapter, or the last book of the Bible, that is, the twelfth chapter of Revelation, listen to this from the Word of God, the Revelation to John. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. This is our God's word to the world. About his plan for what he is doing in divine redemption. In some old novels, and especially in TV westerns from the 50s and 60s, there would be times quite frequently when you might hear a cowboy speaking about a little town somewhere out on the edge of the prairies, a place at the edge of nowhere where that cowboy might label that a God-forsaken place, meaning that there's not much joy in being there, and there doesn't seem to be any blessing from God in that desolate and dismal location on the earth. But when we think about the phrase, a God-forsaken place, If we would claim that any person or place really has been forsaken by God completely, that's a very solemn idea. And in the Bible, if you would pronounce that that situation exists in almost any place, regardless of how hopeless the scene looks, you probably are mistaken. Because the Scripture shows us that there's only one time in history where God literally and truly, forsook any person, completely removing the felt awareness of his presence and his blessing. And that, of course, was the critical hour when Jesus Christ the Son hung on Calvary and was led to cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? We believe that then and only then did the Father and Creator truly turn his back, and he had to do that because of his son being made the sin-bearer there on the cross for you and me. Well, Genesis 3 reveals a scene that at least human estimations would be inclined to say, here is a God-forsaken time in the beautiful Garden of Eden. Paradise has been wrecked, it seems, just about like New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina swept through. And we would say it looks like a God forsaken place since not only have the man and woman disobeyed the Lord, but now the Lord moves in to speak in subsequent verses his curse first upon the serpent and then upon Adam and Eve. God is ready to pronounce judgment. And if we would assume and we were imagining what is coming next, not knowing what is here, we would probably think after this revolt, after what has been done, God will come crashing in with doom on their heads, and there will be no escape from the Lord coming to blast Eden until it's, it's like a blackened cinder in the fire of His wrath. The serpent, who we know was none other than Satan, however he represented himself in a being that was seen He came and made them believe a deviant idea. That idea, that lie, was actually captured in a phrase by John Milton in his work called Paradise Lost where it is said there, it is better to reign in hell than be a servant in heaven. And that's essentially what the man and woman believed. At least they didn't know they were going in that direction, but that's where they ended up. They believed they might rule over things and be like God, but in fact, they found themselves shackled by iron bands to their own guilt and shame. Now, what we find happening here is that God indeed does speak to sinning people, and He does indeed make known that there's a penalty, there's a curse that will change their lives because of the way they have behaved. And yet, the amazing message this morning is that God speaks In His astounding grace, without ceasing to be holy and righteous and a God who is just, without omitting penalties for sin that are real, in this unlikely situation, particularly in Genesis 3.15, we hear in the Word of God the first prophetic note of what we call the gospel, the good news of God's redemption. That one day will be fulfilled in Christ. Yes, Adam and Eve received consequences, and their lives would be changed because of sin. The next time I'm able to speak on this passage, Lord willing, and we'll look at verses 16 through the end of the chapter and see how the woman's, what should be the woman's delight in bearing children, would be a thing fraught with pain, and how making a living from the ground would become wretchedly. Difficult, like the economic circumstances that we face in our society today. But I want you to see today, particularly in verse 15, the grace of God in Christ promised in power in a place where you least expect to find it. Our key verse says this, spoken to God's archenemy, to Satan. I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. You might be learning from me for the first time today that Genesis 3.15 is so important to the message of the whole Bible that Martin Luther said about it, this one verse embraces and comprehends in itself everything that is noble and glorious, to be found anywhere in the Scriptures. Let us examine why he would say something as grand as that. In the first place today, learn this, that God created a wall of permanent hostility here to protect us. That's a strange statement. God created a wall of hostility to protect us. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Now, the Lord begins addressing Satan here, and he doesn't, notice he doesn't stop and say, Let me ask you a few questions. Why did you do this? Why did you behave this way? Do you have anything to say? The Lord doesn't deal with Satan that way. He simply addresses him and pronounces sentence on him without asking for explanation. And remember, we a couple of weeks ago looked at the behind the scenes idea that Scripture seems to present that this serpent is an angel of light who once desired to mount the throne of God and have power like God's, now what is going to happen to him? His sentence is that he will crawl on the earth like a despised thing. He will eat dust. He will have the lowest place. Metaphorically saying here that he will be humiliated He wanted to soar above the heights of God. He's going to inhabit the lowest place. He's going to be beneath every creature. Even the animals of this world will have greater dignity than he does. And he will have to crawl, crawl to deceive men and women, although he'll still be able to do that in God's timing. There's a cosmic drama here. Satan, from this point on, becomes what the Bible calls him in other places, the God of this world, the God who's still active, God with a small g. He's not equal to God in any sense. But he's the one who rules, the prince of this world. And unbelieving men and women, along with angels apparently who fell with him that we would call demons today, who refuse to trust in God, are under his control and still wreaking a lot of tragedy and a lot of difficulty and temptation. Now, at first glance, there doesn't seem to be anything very wonderful about this initial part of our text. Why would God create this enmity, which means antagonism? And if God is is the author here, as it sounds like he is, of a, a spiritual kind of warfare between good and evil, how can that be something blessed or something useful or helpful to us? Well, we believe what the Lord is doing here is instilling in the minds of men and women and in our consciences an innate hatred of that which is evil. He's saying, look, I am going to make sin be repulsive to you in a certain way. Yes, it might still glitter. It might still look attractive enough to entice you. But when you taste of it, when you enter into it, you're going to say, oh, why did I do that? You're going to wake up with a bad taste in your mouth and a hollowness in your heart and an emptiness that you thought doing this thing would fulfill you or exalt you or, or enrich you. And you're going to realize, it does none of those things. Why would I do that? And you're going to not feel at home in partaking of the illicit pleasures and pursuits that are against the grain of the will of God. Do you see? God is giving us a blessing here. He's going. To, he's making us understand. The old spiritual song says, this world is not my home. The things of this world are not my native things. You might assume that there are a lot of people today that have no place for God or Christ in their lives who are, who are just on their way to hell and, and quite happy in the journey. Don't kid yourself. Even people whose consciences have become calloused, who are able to shut down the voice of the Spirit of God in their lives, are not happy in their sinful rebellion. They might have a foolish grin pasted on their faces, but they're not happy because God has injected this sense of of desolation, of something is wrong, enmity. I'm out of adjustment with God. And even those who are deep into anti-God behavior are often not very far from recognizing that in their quiet moments when they slow down and look inside themselves. So even that misery that that we're given to make us feel out of place in the pursuits of sin is a gift from God. God is saying, I am going to make it not comfortable for you to live a life apart from me, and even this will be a part of my steps to rescue and redeem you. He created this wall of hostility to protect us. Well, we go on, though, to the really important center of, of verse 15, Genesis 3:15. In what many have called a clash of two champions, there was an old way of, of proceeding in warfare long ago, and a an illu- good illustration of it is in the battle of David and Goliath in the Old Testament, when two armies would maybe be in some position of relative stand off and maybe figure, you know, one wants to conquer the other, but a a big clash battle doesn't seem to be the best way to go about it. The challenge might go out, well, send out your champion and we'll send out our champion and they'll do battle in a field between us and winner take all, you know, whoever conquers that army is going to be the victor in whatever is, whatever spoil or territory or whatever it is is being fought over. David and Goliath would, would illustrate that. Well, that's what we have here in this text. As God says to Satan, there is going to be a historic contest. And the offspring of the woman, or your translation might say the seed of the woman, in this contest is going to crush your head as you strike his heel. Some mystery person called the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. Who is this? When is this going to come? Where will it happen? How will it take place? God leaves all that in suspense here in Genesis 3.15. One commentator suggested by leaving open the question of who the seed of the woman is, God puts Satan constantly in suspense and on his guard the rest of, of time. He must live in a continual dread of the fact that every woman's son who will be born from that day onward could actually be this one who will do him in. And by the way, just a side observation as we go ahead to to look at chapter 4 in coming weeks, Lord willing, when Eve gave birth to her son Cain, she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man Some believe that the the correct way to render the Hebrew is, I've brought him forth. I've brought forth the man. What would Eve think, having known this promise? Why, here's my son. This is the one who God said would defeat Satan. But, of course, you knew that Cain is something quite different indeed, and we'll get to that. But notice the outcome that is predicted in this epic contest of two champions here. The woman's offspring is going to crush Satan on the head, a fatal blow. If you you render, you know, a heavy wound to someone's head, you're likely to kill him. But if you are wounded on your heel, that is not likely to destroy you in most instances, a lesser strike that does not cause the end of the person being wounded. Now, here's an interesting thing in Galatians 3.16 as the New Testament is speaking about the long-term purposes of God. Paul wrote there that everything that God had promised and the salvation that He was going to bring beginning with Abraham and onward was not promised to the seeds of His descendants, which means many people, but it would come true in the seed, meaning one person Who is Christ? And it seems very much like Galatians 3.16 is simply echoing. Genesis 3.15. Here is a key in this early verse in Genesis that you see that, that begins to give us a heavy hint. I know the name of Jesus isn't in there, but the heavy hint is there that God is going to bring redemption to men and women in which Satan will be defeated And the one who comes, the offspring of the woman, curious name in which you might see even the first hint of the virgin birth, that God is going to bring His champion who's going to triumph. Now, just realize where this is being spoken. Here in the Garden of Eden with the wreckage of human life, the human experiment, if we want to call it that, that appears to be all in ruins. You could you know, almost scrap Adam and Eve and start over again, you'd want to say. But the Lord doesn't do that. He says, no, I have a plan. My son is going to come one day and strike a blow against you, Satan. And we, of course, can read this Scripture from the perspective in history far after the fact and say, why, we know when that happened. We know how that happened when Jesus Christ came at his cross and defeated Satan, and triumphed even over death itself. Now, there's a vivid picture, and I read that Revelation text for you because the Bible's very consistent in the way it portrays things from beginning to end, and it's interesting to see something in the first book and see it again in the last book, as Revelation 12, yes, through symbols, and yes, Revelation isn't always the easiest book to untangle, but If you just take it as a picture message, it isn't that hard to understand. As Revelation 12 speaks about a great red dragon or serpent who waits before a woman giving birth to a child to destroy, to devour that child the moment he is born, it says. And yet, we're also told there that this child is one destined to rule over nations Revelation 12.9 calls that, I didn't go that far as I read, but it calls this dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, and predicts that he will be hurled to the earth in absolute defeat. And if you go a little farther than what I read, it tells that this one is in history now filled with fury, for he knows that his time is short. God has designed that there would be a battle of champions that would end up, result in the end of this evil one who undid everything in the Garden of Eden. Well, thirdly, one more thing to consider today then is this assurance, the real assurance of Christ's victory that is strongly hinted at and even predicted right here early in Genesis. Genesis. I'm co-teaching the book of Revelation in our adult Sunday school classes, and we told folks, Dr. Light and I, that on the first week we said, well, complex book before us here, but let's give you the simple theme. Three words. The Lamb wins. That's the theme of Revelation. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, wins in the contest of evil in history. And that's exactly what Genesis 3.15 says, predicts way back here in the early page of the Bible. It took centuries to see it worked out. This prediction was so early. What did Moses understand when he wrote this down? You know, the question you should always want to try to understand, what did the first writer understand and the people to whom he wrote, what did they think? Well, we do understand that the New Testament says sometimes the prophets themselves vainly strove to understand what they were predicting, that God was by His Spirit was moving them to say. What did Moses understand about someone crushing the head of Satan and having his heel struck? I have no idea. I don't think Moses knew the name of Jesus Christ. And yet he recorded this prophecy that we could see coming true in time and space history. And isn't it Isn't the victory achieved just about the way it's said here and just the way Revelation 12 says that Satan was there as this monster waiting to devour the child? Think about Jesus of Nazareth being born according to prophecy in Judea, in Bethlehem, to a virgin woman, the seed of the woman. It was according to plan. Satan's animosity was stirring. I believe it was Satan who tried to infect the mind of Joseph when he realized mary was bearing a child and he knew it wasn't his child and he said i have to do i have to set her aside i have to divorce her and then god corrected the mind of joseph i have to believe it was the fury of that great dragon himself that was motivating herod the half crazy king to slaughter all the babies under two years of age trying to destroy this one and i have to believe that it was this dragon himself who came against Christ in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, trying to turn him aside, tempting him as a man. And it was this same one who inhabited and and indwelt the leaders of the religious establishment as they opposed Jesus every step of the way in his ministry. And finally, it was this one who struck with the fist of Rome and nailed him on a cross, and then allowed that lifeless body to be taken down and put in the tomb. And oh, if you can imagine Satan, if you can give Satan a personality and a picture, he must have danced to think, I have done away with him. It appeared he had won, but you know what happened. As he began his dance of victory, God broke open the tomb of Jesus Christ. He wasn't dead after all. And Satan fell on his own sword so that revelation would be fulfilled. And now we know that he is a defeated foe of God and of Christ. And he will be permanently defeated in the end of time. He gave Christ a wound in his heel, but he took a wound to his head. And Colossians chapter 2 speaks about that. Saying Christ has, by the cross, disarmed the powers and authorities, all that array of Satan's army. He disarmed them. He made a public spectacle out of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Theologians ever after, understanding the importance of this verse, Genesis 3.15, have given it a special name. And in the older days of theology, everything had a Latin name. And so they call this verse the proto Evangelion. It's a simple word, actually. It means first gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the first utterance of the good news of God's plan of redemption. And so, if you wondered if your preacher had lost his mind drawing a sermon for Christmas Sunday from a text that is God-speaking judgment on Satan and then reading a of a text from Revelation, I trust maybe you see my thinking today. Because what better message could we hear right before Christmas than to know that God in his surprising grace was planning to bring Christ into the picture even as he had to render judgment on humanity's original sin. As the shadow fell on Eden, God knew the Son of righteousness was going to rise one day. And isn't it true that our God is always working this way? His grace intrudes in places that are unlikely, in unlikely settings and lives, in that person that looks too far gone to ever be saved. God picks out unlikely people. When he needed a writer for the first five books of the Bible and a, a champion to lead Israel out of Egypt, who did he choose? You know, some young, strong man. He chose broken-down, 80-year-old Moses, forgotten, living out there at the edge of nowhere, and called this man to come and be the deliverer of his people. When he needed a premier apostle to plant churches and extend the gospel message of Christ throughout the Mediterranean region, who did he get? One of the original 12? One who was already strong in the Scriptures and so on? Why didn't he pick the biggest, most vehement Christian hater of them all, Saul of Tarsus, and knock that man off his horse until his mind and his eyes were changed and he became the great apostle of the Gentiles? When this God of wonders and of unlikely things wanted to bring the seed of the woman into history… It wasn't with some triumphal march and the blaring of trumpets and the trappings of royalty. It was with an unwed teenage mother putting her baby in a feed box with the lowlifes, and they were lowlifes, the shepherds, called to be the first ones to give him praise. What a God this is. Look at how he brings grace in all the places where it is not expected. And my message to you is that this is the way he will break into your life. If you're in a place of brokenness today, if you're in a place of financial difficulty, if you have some major relationship all awry in your life As you approach this Christmas day, do you comprehend that the great victory of God's champion, Jesus, over the powers of death and hell is your victory? And he wants to accomplish it, maybe in the unlikely circumstance of your life as it is right now. There's a remarkable text in Isaiah 53, another chapter that predicts Christ in the Old Testament And it uses the terminology of seeds and bruising that sounds kind of similar to Genesis 3.15. This is what Isaiah predicted there. Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, listen to this phrase, he will see his seed. He will see his offspring. And prolong his days that 's telling us that a never married man, Jesus of Nazareth, has many offspring, spiritual offspring, men and women of true faith in him who trust in his cross and submit to his lordship, who are going to share in his victory in their lives in time and space in history that 's why Paul gave a, a ringing and wonderful benediction in romans sixteen twenty to the suffering church at Rome, and he said to them, the God of peace is soon going to crush Satan under your feet. What scheme of Satan is being thrown at you right now? Probably something. Discouragement? Joblessness? Financial difficulty? Grief over somebody who's died? In this last year, Christmas is a very hard time for people who've had a death in their home. And whatever that pain is, and it's real pain. I don't minimize it. You need to know it comes from that evil one who crawls in the dust at the feet of your Savior who has to ask permission, as he did with Job, to lay a finger on you. And you can be assured that God does not allow the offspring of Jesus Christ, his children by faith, to be destroyed or harmed permanently by any scheme of that one who crawls in the dirt. The God of grace is always unexpected. The gospel announced in Genesis 3.15 is good news that says just when you feel your whole life is shattered and ruined and there's no way out, God enters the broken, unlikely circumstance of your life with the promise of saving power, forgiveness, purpose, peace in Jesus Christ. And you ought to look for that wherever it's least expected. Look for Christ to break in at the time and the place when you least expect Him. For that is God's chosen pattern of working and bringing transformational grace to you as well. When you welcome Him with open arms of faith, you will not be the same ever again. Praise to God. Father, we thank You that Christmas was actually born in the Garden of Eden. First announced there probably not understood by those who first heard it, but you understood and you knew what you were doing, how we praise you, that even as our world was in ruins there, you were planning the way out. Thank you, Father, for all that Jesus Christ means. Bring His grace to be a thrilling and reassuring presence that changes lives even today, broken lives, hurting lives. Let us know Christ and be reborn by a trust in Him and His victory. In Jesus' name, amen.